Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. As uh, folks familiar with this show know, um, I, uh, you know I'm a fan of uh, early 70s Christian rock. And I've been collecting this stuff for a long time. I make uh, collections. I give it out to people. I, uh, I've written about it in a number of places. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a funny sort of obsession because most of the people that I know who aren't Christian aren't particularly interested in, in, in hearing this music, even though they'll happily listen to uh, gospel music and gospel-inflected R&B. There's something about the, the, the white hippie Christians of the early 70s that kind of turned folks off. Uh, and, you know, for the most part, I'm fine, whatever. If you're not into it, you're into it. I have my own reasons for it, my own interests in uh, American Christianity and religious experience and the history of the counterculture and all of its uh, uh, guises. And that's one side of the counterculture that really doesn't get much um, uh, uh, attention from from people who are you know a, a still identified with it, partly because it's like people, oh, those they're 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 Christians, they don't fit. When actually the story is much much more complicated, as we'll as we'll hear today. But you know, for the most part, even though I think there's a lot of amazing music, some incredible psychedelic rock records, some incredible mystic hippie records, mostly on their own labels, you know, self produced. Um, I, amateurish in some ways, but but really profound and, and earnest in a lot of ways. For the most part, I don't. If people aren't into it, I, I don't push it. I don't think there's something that they should hear. I don't think you should necessarily grok Fractions Moonblood, even though it's a masterpiece of uh, of, of psychedelic guitar uh, ferocity. But there's one figure associated with the the Jesus movement scene in the late 60s and early 70s that I believe is a genuine grade A rock star who has never gotten the attention uh, that he should from other rock fans, from people who are just interested in that music and that genre, and particularly in charismatic, uh, politically engaged, troubled, troubling um, you know, rock and roll maestros who are amazing performers. And this this character is is Larry Norman, uh, who's got a different kind of story. He came from a more mainstream background and, you know, with major label supports first. His first sort of uh, solo record is on a major label, 1969, Upon This Rock, uh, with some great hits on it. Didn't do so well and went off on his on more on his own. We'll hear more about uh, uh, that with our guest today, who's uh, Gregory Allen Thornbury, who, who wrote this um, wonderful rock bio, Why Should the Devil Have All the Good Music, Larry Norman and the Perils of Christian Rock. But again, uh, Larry Norman transcends even questions of, tri- uh, of Christianity in terms of his performative power and the way in which he used uh, some influences, Rolling Stones, Dylan certainly on the lyrics, and mix them into a, a very powerful and long-running um, uh, rock career with enough uh, <laughs> problems, bumps on the road, personal breakdowns, uh, uh, financial uh, confusions to make a, well, for a good rock bio, which is why the devil should uh, <laughs> have all the good music is... Uh, <laughs> Good example of. So uh, with no further ado, uh, the author, Gregory Allen Thornbury, welcome to Expanding Mind. It's great to be on the program. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. 
No problem. You know, and I got to say, like, one of the reasons why when I got the the book in the mail and I was really excited that, a, that a, a, you know, a, a, a notable press would put out um, a record, a, a book like this. And I, I was very happy. Um, you know, it's a nice hardcover, got the whole story. Uh, and then I went to the back, as I often do, and I saw your your author photo. And it's just it's so excellent. I don't, I don't know exactly what to, how to describe the hairstyle, the way it falls over the, the front of your brow. And then you have this kind of. <laughs> This this marvelous proud expression, and you have these you know classic old books behind you, and then the classic uh, uh, conservative bow tie, which just you wear <laughs> with, with such finesse. So I, I you know I was like, this is going to be fun. You know that was my attitude. And so in a way, I kind of want to start with you uh, because I don't know. Uh, I know you talk a little bit in the book about when you first he heard Larry Norman and when you were listening to the the the, the current. Uh, Christian rock and Christian popular music uh, of your of your of your era when you were uh, in college or in graduate school. And that's when you first kind of discovered Larry Norman. So I'd love if you could just tell us a little bit about where you were, what you were studying, what your kind of frame was, and then how music, both uh, Christian music and and weird popular music. I know you've you, you've written about uh, Daniel Johnson, for example. You know something I was completely obsessed with in my own uh, rock and roll. Uh, history and so you have you have good taste. Um, so I'd you. love to hear how uh, how music functioned for you in the, the 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 situation of your studies of your theological studies uh, and it's particularly uh, your discovery of Larry Norman. Well, I, I come from a musical family. Uh, my father is a multi instrumentalist. Um, he was pastor, but he was also quite a, a talented musician. Was in a was in a, like a gospel quartet back in, in the, the 50s and 60s and uh, plays honky-tonk piano like uh, Mickey Gilly. And so I grew up in a very musical home and um, most of my uh, relatives play or sing one thing or another. So I, I was always surrounded by music. I wasn't allowed to listen to rock and roll growing up though with some notable exceptions. Like we, we had like the Elvis Christmas record, you know, but Rock and roll was definitely not a good thing. My my parents thought it would lead me down the primrose path to disaster. And so, of course, that's exactly what I was attracted to. I remember getting into, you know, a good bit of trouble the first time I brought home. Uh, I think it was a Dire Straits record uh, home and kind of surreptitiously it was found in, in my uh, desk drawer. So they, I lived in that sort of Christian fundamentalist world in which you know, it's hard for people to remember a time when this was uh, the case, but there really was a time when your youth pastor would invite you to church and the activity was to bring your Led Zeppelin and Beatles albums and throw them on a bonfire and burn them. You know, it, there was that time. So, of course, I was attracted to rock and roll and I wanted to play it. And um, my dad taught me folk style guitar, like all of Peter, Paul and Mary. But I soon certainly learned to play rock and roll. And I started playing bands when I was in college. And I wound up working at this Christian radio station because I was um, at an FM radio station that was attached to my alma mater, Psy College. And I hated everything I heard on this Christian radio station because the Christian music that I heard sounded like a pale imitation of everything that that I actually liked. And I actually noticed in the promotionals for these musicians or for these records, it was like, if you like the sound of James Taylor, you will like the sound of 
whoever, David Meeks, you know, or you like, you know, Billy Joel, you'll like Wayne Watson or whatever. And I just thought it was miserable. But uh, at the radio station, there was one semi-professional DJ who was older who said, I think there is one record that you would like. And he took me out of the control booth. This was all CDs at this point. And he went out into the stack of vinyl and he pulled off the shelf, Only Visiting This Planet by Larry Norman. And um, I went into the other sound booth and lowered the needle down on the record. And I flipped the record cover over and I was like, wow, this is produced by a group put together by George Martin, the Beatles producer. And the musicians on this record are people that I can identify as like actual rock and roll people like John Wetton from King Crimson, Crimson was playing bass. And I was just blown away by the record. And it was on a secular record label, MGM Verve. And so I was like, wow, there's actually one rock star <laughs> in Christian rock. Now, I went on to later find out other stuff that I liked. But that was sort of the, the beginning of it, because I myself was playing in bands, and, and I was listening to Bob Dylan and, and, and The Clash and Elvis Costello and U2, and there just wasn't anything that I heard, you know, in the Christian genre that sounded that good. I, you know, and so I kind of coined a phrase that, um, you know, I've been associated with over the years, which is, Christian is the greatest of all nouns and the lamest of all adjectives. Because when you say Christian rock or Christian art or Christian films, it always means like it's not as good as the actual thing. <laughs> That's really great. Uh, you know, I, just to give people a taste, because I suspect that most people listening to the show have not heard Larry Norman, we're going to play a, just a brief excerpt uh, of the start of one of the great tunes, many great tunes on Only the Visiting This Planet from 1972. Uh, this tune is called Why Don't You Look Into Jesus? So we'll play this uh, right now. Sipping whiskey from a paper cup You drown your sorrows till you can't stand up And take a look at what you've done to yourself Why don't you, you put the bottle back on the shelf Yellow from your cigarettes Your hands are shaking while your body sweats Why don't you look into Jesus? He got the answer Okay, that was uh, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus from, uh, uh, from Larry Norman, or at least a little brief selection of it. And uh, one of the, the, the questions I have for you, you know, I know this is, this is a big theme in the book, and I think one of the, the, the most interesting theme, and something that I had, as a fan of, of this music and also more uh, a, uh, amateur, self-printed, uh, self-published um, Jesus music from the, from the early 70s, that I hadn't really thought of as as much as you brought forward, which is this kind of who is he who is he doing this for? Who is he singing for? You know, like when he especially when his first record his first records he's on a major label, so in some sense he's 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 got these an audience of, of broader rock fans, and yet as a Christian, a self identified Christian, he's also has sort of the burden or the 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 pressure to represent Christianity, to be Christian, to to give something to other Christians that was that are going to satisfy them or, or or orient them or something. So in in some ways, it's a very complicated place. And of course, this track he's talking directly to 
you know, fellow baby boomers who are, you know, mired in drugs and sex and confusion and the and occultism. And he's, you know, trying to trying to, you know, suggest another way. But at the same time, there's something really complicated and kind of difficult about the position that he's in. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's a high wire act. I mean, he's he's caught he's torn between two worlds. He's torn between the world of Christ and, and the world of the devil, which is, you know, the secular rock and roll music industry that was and both the church and the secular music industry was completely befuddled by Larry Norman's project. The church didn't want to have anything to do with it because it did think rock and roll was of the devil. And so they wanted to suppress this movement. They, they thought that uh, Larry Norman was the, the Pied Piper that was going to lead the kids astray. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the uh, uh, Professor Hill from the Music Man that, uh, you know, is going to you know, destroy, destroy them. And uh, on the other side, secular record labels saying, what's the market for this? Um, who, who is going to listen to this? Because you have to remember at the time, there was no billion-dollar Christian music industry. Larry Norman sort of unintentionally started that by recording this movement that then later caught on with a revival that was beginning to happen in Southern California called the Jesus Movement. And then it later became commercial, which was religious-infused rock and roll, because we all know songs that came out after Larry Norman, like Jesus is Just All Right With Me by the Doobie Brothers, or Presence of the Lord by Blind Faith, Eric Clapton and, and Steve Winwood. Um, Bridge Over Triple, Troubled Water was sung in churches by you know, Simon Garfunkel. Uh, My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. All that stuff came out in the early 70s, kind of post-Jesus movement. So there was a commercial market developed for this, but when Larry Norman recorded Upon This Rock in 1969, for Capitol Records, uh, it was uh, a brand new thing. And if you went down to Tower Records, there was no genre called Christian psychedelic music. Yeah, and and, and I think one thing that would be help uh, helpful at this point is to just give a little bit more of a background on, on the Jesus movement, this unique period in American Christianity and in the counterculture. And again, one of the things that interests me about the Jesus movement, and I've, I've actually done a lot of study and I'm fascinated by many of the characters, uh, both the sort of older uh, preachers who kind of discover and begin to minister to hippies and young people, and then also the people's stories going through Christian communes. And and, and one of the things that's interesting about that that whole movement is that Everybody disowns it. As I said, like the counterculture, the story of the counterculture, people are happy to talk about Hinduism and how that, you know, meditation and Buddhism and how that influenced today. But they don't really even acknowledge the fact that that many, especially in the late 60s, that there was this really powerful few years where very countercultural young people who are, you know, into drugs, into experimentation, whatever stepped in towards towards a, a kind of Christianity that was still very radical. Again, they were some of them were living in communes. Uh, some of yes. them were completely rejecting the idea of the church. They were like, I'm not religious. I, right. I'm a Jesus person. And they, I mean, it was right. very radical. And at the same time, within American Christianity, the history, you know, people within, uh, uh, you know, evangelical and fundamentalist movements, they don't really want to talk about that stuff until it becomes uh 
in, in, integrated enough, incorporated enough, right. sort of ta tamed enough that they can say, okay, this is actually just another form of American Christianity that we can recognize and is actually quite influential. Uh, but there's these like this period of time in the late 60s and very early 70s that like nobody really wants to deal with. So I, I'd like to hear you talk about a little bit about that larger context and then and how Larry Norman related to that and, and the pivotal role he played in in kind of giving those people uh, a focus, at least in terms of music, musical leadership. Well, Larry was at the vanguard of all of that. And going back to the song that you played, Why Don't You Look Into Jesus, that, that song was written for Janis Joplin because Larry, when he was in, in, his, in his band People in 1967, 1968, they were opening up for Jimi Hendrix and The Doors and Janis Joplin and, and uh, Big Brother and The Holding Company and Santana and, and groups like that. So he was rubbing shoulders with all these people and he could he could look on stage, you know, from the artist area and, and the opening image of why don't you look into Jesus is sipping whiskey from a paper cup. You drown your sorrows till you can't stand up. Uh, that's, he, he's talking about Janis Joplin, you know, uh, yellow figure from your cigarette, your hands are shaking while your body sweats. Why don't you look into Jesus? He actually was doing this as an evangelistic outcry to that generation to say, listen, you know, you, you've, you've tried LSD, you, you've tried drugs, you've tried free love, and, you know, it's sort of run its course. And there's this moment in the book where I talk about George Harrison visiting the Haight-Ashbury district with, with Patty, you know, in, in, you know, at the height of, of that movement. And he said, I thought I was going to find all these, like, beautiful, enlightened people. And what I found was just like a complete, you know, sociocultural disaster that was happening out there. So that was the group that Larry was trying to speak to. And he had the mouthpiece of a secular record label, and it was incredibly countercultural. It wasn't until a couple of years later where the one-way sign, which Larry invented in concert, you know, with one finger pointed towards heaven, uh, which got imitated by people where instead of clapping after his songs, you know, to applaud, they would just point one finger into the sky to say, you know, it's only about Jesus. So you'd have silence <laughs> instead of applause. All that stuff became commercialized later on, and that's what—that's the moment at which a real radical like Larry wanted to have nothing to do with it anymore because it had become commercialized. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about his Christianity. I mean, you know, when especially if if people aren't that familiar with the you know the wide variety of ways that people can consider themselves Christian in the modern West, you think of someone like like Larry. Oh, he's judgmental against alcohol or whatever. So what, he's some kind of, you know, conservative church believer, but he was an extremely radical person and his Christianity was very radical and his attitude towards the church as, which was also true of so many of the younger Jesus people was, was quite hostile. And so it's a very interesting mix. And so I'd love to hear you, you know, talk a little bit about what, in what ways did he consider himself to be a Christian and in what ways did he find fault with other uh, people who were calling themselves Christian at that time. Well, in terms of his, in terms of his core belief system, it was, you know, the term would be orthodox. I mean, it was pretty orthodox in the sense that he would have been able to cite, recite in good conscience the Apostles' Creed. You know, he believed that that the Bible was actually God's word. He 
definitely believed that you needed to uh, come to terms with the person of Jesus of Nazareth and his life and his miracles and his care for the poor and his death and resurrection and the fact that God did raise him from the dead sort of makes a claim upon uh, an endorsement upon his whole ministry, which was about the, the poor and the dispossessed and, you know, uh, those who couldn't defend themselves. And so, you know, Larry had a famous song called The Outlaw, where he said Jesus was a, was a, he was a bandit in his own time. That's the way the Roman government saw him. That's the way the religious leaders saw him. And that's the way we ought to be. You know, the religious leaders and in, in the extant church, the, the Jewish authorities at that time, did not like what Jesus was saying. He was outside the system, critiquing the system. That's how we ought to be. So in terms of his own personal beliefs, you know, you probably couldn't have found a whole lot of difference between someone like him and Billy Graham. But on the other hand, he was very radical in the sense that he felt like why do he felt like the church was too bourgeois. There's a there's a poem that he recited in concert uh, a, a lot that was uh, written by uh, a poet and psychologist in the UK named Gordon Bailey, and it was called First Time in Church, and it describes the experience of like a, a you know a street kid you know and his like gang of buddies that wander into church for the first time and how bizarre a conventional sort of you know. Anglican worship service would have been to that kind of person. And it concludes with this, you know, Larry speaking in the voice of this character saying, you know, there's this homeless man out on the street outside the church and people came out of church and they'd smile and then they just pass right by. And, you know, the last line of the poem is, I get the message loud and clear. Church is middle class. So the institution of the church is for the elites, it's for the bourgeois class, but Jesus and his followers were this radical ragtag, um, you know, unconventional, out in the streets group of people that were actually meeting the needs of people as they were. They were feeding the poor, they were healing the sick, they were proclaiming good news, you know, uh, to the, the poor and dispossessed of this world. And, and that's what Larry Norman was about. That was his version of Christianity. And it was very different than the institutional church of the time, which we're spending and still are spending multi-millions of dollars on church facilities that after the charismatic preacher, you know, falls or leaves, is sits empty. Yeah, and, and also his, uh, you know, I don't even really want to call them positions, but just, you know, he regularly is calling out civil you know civilization including the church for uh you know neglecting the environment for you know terrible race relations i mean in some ways it, he he really had some values some political positions that we would think of as progressive and and yet there's this core where he's an orthodox believer he's a billy graham guy he's not some like you know oh it's all just a symbolic metaphor let's be liberal kind of uh christianity and it's a it's a very strange mix for us today, because it's it's we, we find it at least in the media or in, in people's presentations much you know it's it's a very rare thing to do, and and he really uh, the, you know and also what you have with him is this like incredible passion and earnestness and and but it's delivered in this kind of 
this sort of prophetic character. Uh, yeah. You know, I think about him in, in terms of Dylan a lot because, you know, you, you listen to some of his songs and, you know, you can hear Dylan, the, the echo of Dylan's voice in some of his tunes, some of his great tunes. And, and you can do that with a lot of people from the, from the 60s and 70s. You listen to him, you can hear Dylan's voice because Dylan was so powerful. But with Larry, I hear something that he picks up on something or he's able to actually incarnate something of Dylan that very few other people can do. And I can't even think of a, a single one right at the moment, which is the prophetic quality, the way that there's a quality of, of judgment and prophecy in Dylan's lyrics all the way through. But particularly, you know, the kind of great whatever, you know, Desolation Row time, whatever, all, you know, that uh, that that Larry was able to to inhabit and carry on that same element that we've always had with Dylan. We're like, it might be a really cool tune, but the next one, he might be just totally on your ass. He's totally getting honest for for falling short. And even if that isn't always a religious idea in Dylan, sometimes it is. Uh it has that kind of prophetic stance that, to my mind, Larry was able to do like no other Christian rocker at that time and like few other rockers. Well, you know, it's interesting about the, the lifestyle of uh, or the life cycle of some of these things, because I think it was actually Larry's work on only visiting this planet and, and others that Bob Dylan wound up listening to that fed back into his gospel period, you know. Um, as I explained in the book, Bob Dylan wound up going to a, a Bible study that Larry and his wife Pam had originally started called The Vineyard, and then it grew and beyond Larry's living room and, and uh, became sort of like its own, its own thing. But um, I, in the epilogue of the book, I explain uh, how Larry's brother Charles was at LAX airport, and he saw Bob Dylan sitting on a bench, you know, that hoodie pulled up over him and he walked up and introduced himself and uh, Charles had his cart with, you know, his guitars and his musical equipment and stuff on it. And Bob said, uh, you know, are you coming back from, you know, touring? And he said, yeah. I said, well, who, who are you with? And he said, uh, my brother is Larry Norman. And Bob Dylan said, tell your brother I'm a big fan. So, you know, it's interesting. Someone like, yeah, I think Larry would have been inspired by Dylan, but then I think, Someone like Bob Dylan was also inspired by Larry Norman, and that's the way art is. But the, the difference, I think, between someone like Larry is Larry is like a true believer. I mean, one of the things, as we know about Dylan's biography, is that he created this huge backlash because when he refused to keep singing folk music and protest music, and, you know, he said, really, I just wanted to be Elvis. You know, I just wanted to be a rock and roll guy. But I wrote some of these songs that, you know, just were so electrifying at the time and they were very evocative of the time. But, you know, once you get past, um, you know, those early Dylan records and you get into Blonde on Blonde and Highway 61 Revisited, there really isn't a lot of prophetic messages on those. For Larry, it was all prophetic. Somehow it was supposed to turn your worldview up on its head and be really challenging, whether it was about, you know, challenging the church to talk about sexually transmitted diseases when they didn't want to talk about it, to talk about institutional racism in the white church when nobody wanted to talk about it. He was willing to address those no-go areas, but do it in a way that the music was so good that you kept coming back and listening to it because it was great rock and roll.
Yeah, I think maybe now's a good time to play the, the other excerpt that we had selected before. This is from uh, the record that, that Larry made after only visiting this planet a year later with uh, some of the similar uh, crew from the UK so long ago, The Garden. And I want to talk more about the weirdness of that record in a minute. But first, I just want to play a, a selection from the song Nightmare Number no. 71, which has some of this... Uh, Dylan-esque uh, lyricism in it, but also, more importantly, expresses this intense kind of uh, prophetic uh, language and, you know, really brilliant, wacky, uh, visionary lyricism that that uh, Larry could could get going at some point. So let's hear a clip from uh, Nightmare number 71. And soon I saw Atlantis rumble and rise high and the great egg of Euphrates came down out of the sky. Out stepped Shirley Temple with Guy Kibbe, who was dead, and that communist Bill Robinson, whom Shirley called Black Red. They had a marionette, a Harpo Marx. They said it was an inside joke. But when I honked his horn, he came alive, and these were the words he spoke. With the continents adrift, and the sun about to shift, Will the ice caps drown us all or will we burn? We polluted what we own. Will we reap what we have sown? Are we headed for the end or can we turn? We paved the forest, kill the streams, burn the bridges to our dreams. The earth is bursting at the seams and in pain a childbirth screams as it gives life to what seems to either be an age that gleams or simply lays there dying. If this goes on, the life survive? How can it? Out of the grave, oh, who will save our planet? Yeah, I mean, the thing about Nightmare 71 is it's like, it's such an apocalyptic track. And, and maybe I think maybe this is a time to, to mention the, the role of apocalyptic expectation in that period of time, not just among Christians in some ways, because, of course, the counterculture itself was infused with a certain kind of nebulous millennialism. It looked forward to some transformation. Maybe it was consciousness. Maybe it was a political revolution. Uh, and, of course, many of the of the Jesus people in the, in the late 60s and early 70s were themselves uh, very apocalyptic. They felt that that stuff was just around the corner, and and indeed, uh, one of Larry's most popular songs among Christians, "I Wish We'd All Been Ready," is this amazing, strange, haunting, disturbing, beautiful song about the rapture. Um, so how how intense was that? How much was it like just almost given that that things were about to shift uh, radically, and how much was it just kind of a a familiar stance to take, a certain kind of apocalyptic framework that, that's always sort of there in the prophetic side of, of Christianity. Well, we know by reading church history that every generation has its sort of apocalyptic fervor. But when Larry wrote that song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready, it was the first thing of its kind to say, what if the world is coming to an end and there really is this moment in which Jesus comes back and evil is allowed to just sort of have its sway. Well, everybody worries about the world going to hell in a handbasket. And that's why a song like I Wish We'd All Been Ready was fodder 
or HBO's current TV series, their Rapture series called The Leftovers. They've taken that that apocalyptic theme of Rapture but put it in a secular context and they, they opened up season three with I wish we'd all been ready. So I think that, you know, whenever you look at um, great philosophers, there is there is this edge between millennialism, as you said, this sort of, you know, hope for peace, love, and joy breaking out. This was Timothy Leary's, you know, approach. You know, LSD was going to usher in this kind of new enlightenment that would, uh, you know, sweep the world. But the other side of that is is the worry that um, the, the, the dark uh, uh, forces of unfettered desire will finally take us over. And you remember, you know, like 1968 is a big and violent year for the country. And it seemed plausible to people that everything might be coming to an end. And we are dealing with this right now. I mean, the president of the United States, public servant number 45, is listening to people who have these sorts of apocalyptic views of the end times. And so he thinks that somehow he's going to play into prophetic history by putting the embassy the United States Embassy in Jerusalem. I mean, this isn't this isn't esoteric stuff, Eric. This is stuff that's like in the news right now. So no, I, it, it's remarkable. Going back in the '60s with yeah. Hal Lindsey and the late great Planet Earth, he preached on some of the same platforms that Larry was playing on. So this was all a hot mess back then. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's also like listening to a track like. Nightmare 71, and partly because I, I don't think I included that clip, but there's a whole thing about about uh, in, uh, about California, you know, the earthquake, you know, California like floating away and sinking. So I live in California, so you know, it always has an extra well, actually, resonance. It's, it's the it's the opposite, actually. California floats away, and the rest of the country sinks. Oh, I thought it was that parts of California float and parts of it sink. Oh, okay, there we go. Thanks for the exegesis. <laughs> so the, the message seems for Larry seems to be Hollywood's wins. It's the entertainment culture that, that actually gets away with it all, and the rest of the country pays for it. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but uh, but 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 it's but more just the bigger picture that 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 sense of earnest apocalypticism that's going on in his voice. Yeah. It's like when you hear it now, you're like, it's just so in your face. It's like it's such a return in some ways, you know, particularly yeah. to that time because it's environment, it's it's uh, terrorism, it's uh, you know economic woes, it's uh, you know fears of Middle East wars. There's a a sense of a kind of uh, you know almost a a, a weird uh, apocalyptic theater happening in Israel. Like there's this sense of something shifting large forces that are that are both very political and and, and military, but also they have this Im imaginal or or uh, uh, you know uh, scriptural kind of dimension to it. Like you say, the movement of of the embassy to Jerusalem is is remarkably significant on that level of of religious allegory. So it's, it's, it, you know, it all feels a little, you know, a little too close in a way. Uh, and, and I, I guess like, I, what does, how does that affect Larry as he goes forward? Um, you know, uh, uh, that song itself is on so long ago, the garden, which got him in trouble with a lot of, uh, his Christian, uh, listeners. So did, did he almost like kind of go his own way because of his, uh, you know, concerns with how, what what things, how things needed to change, is how the church needed to change. Did he end up like alienating himself more and more from 
uh, from a lot of his his Christian listeners because of his his radical stance? Well, he he's you know at the zenith of the Jesus movement, Larry becomes concerned that it has sort of become commercialized and has become sort of branded. And he sits on stage at the Royal Albert Hall in London and announces to the audience that he doesn't want to do, quote unquote, Christian concerts anymore because he says, and I quote, I don't want it to be said that he made money off of Jesus. So he didn't want this to be his career. He was trying to be wake people up to certain things. And as soon as it became popular, because he was like kind of like a true artist, he wanted to go to that next place. And so um, he, his next album after that is utterly devoid of any explicit Jesus uh, references. And it's a very dark, surreal, twisty, metaphorical and, and, and allegorical uh, record. And people didn't like it because it wasn't straight up the middle. You know, he wasn't preaching with it. So you say, well, you know, in some ways, Larry's sort of hardcore and he's sort of straight up the middle preaching. But then as soon as you say that, you look at an album like So Long Ago, The Garden, he's naked on the cover. All of his Christian fans are like, oh, gosh, he's fallen away from the Lord. So this, this, this is a guy who sat on his own fence post and whistled his own tune. And he wasn't the definition of an artist. He almost felt like if it was commercial, it, it, it had, there had to be something wrong with it. Yeah, and, and that really, you know, it comes through in the music, and it also comes through in, in the performances. I mean, one of the things that I, I was also able to gain from your book is a, a better sense of his power as a performer, and also how successful he was, particularly outside the United States later yeah. in his career, you know, big world tours, you know, huge fandoms in Australia and Scandinavia, all over the yeah. world. Um, but he also had a very particular character as a performer i mean he he was charismatic but but in a in a in a unique way so could you give us a little flavor of of what a larry norman concert was like or what the vibe was that made it different than just an entertainer well the interesting thing about it which i think really does set larry norman apart is that he had this he had this way of getting your attention and making it seem both extremely serious and also very entertaining and funny at the same time. So I describe at the beginning of the book, the typical Larry Norman concert, he played with bands and he had great bands over the years, but he always had a solo part of the concert where it was just him with a spotlight on stage, two mics, one for his cheap flamenco style uh, nylon string guitar, and one for the uh, uh, vocals, both wet with reverb. And he would always, in his contract, stipulate that the uh, guitar mic was to be set at the same level as the vocal mic. And inevitably, when he would get up and strum the guitar, they would have, in between the sound check and the actual show, turned down the guitar volume because Christian music is about the message. It's not about the music. Well, he would hassle the sound guy. He would embarrass the sound guy and say, yeah, could you turn this mic up past where it says folk music? You know, he really give the whoever the sound guy was often at some ministry a really hard time. Now, Larry did that for legitimate reasons, but he also kept doing it because he saw that it put people on edge. And instead of people happy, clappy, this is an up, 
lifting praise concert for Jesus, he would make people sit up on edge and they're like, like there's a fight about ready to break out. All of a sudden there you could hear a pin drop. And Larry had this mesmerizing effect on the crowds. Um, I, I, this isn't in the book, didn't make the final cut of the book, but he called it the green hand. He said there was like this, w this thing that would come out of his head when he was performing that would create a silence over a crowd. And, but then he would crack a joke. So, you know, like he would say things like, uh, yeah, um, you know, I, I, I grew up, uh, in, in, you know, a, a really conservative fundamentalist church. And they said that, uh, you know, dancing was, was wrong because, you know, it's a horizontal, uh, horizontal expression of, um, you know, uh, a, a, a vertical thought, you know, I mean, he, he would crack these jokes or actually a, a vertical, a horizontal expression of a, a vertical desire or whatever it was. He was a reference and people would be la roaring laughing, but then he would get really intimate. And I think this is what, what part of his staying power over the long term was that people actually were coming for these intimate, captivating performances. So it was way more than just the records. It was his uh, whole uh, environment that he created in concert. And like you said, you know, at the, at the zenith of his career, he was selling out major auditoriums all around the world. Yeah, and it's interesting to uh, to track him forward too. I mean, you know, my own interest in 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 Christian music is sort of in inverse proportion to the growth of the of the industry of of uh, you know contemporary Christian music, and so I even never even frankly listened to some of the later records because I'm like, yeah, you know, it'll it'll be kind of terribly produced and whatever, and it was unfair of me because. Uh, some of his late records were 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 really as as powerful as anything that he did, so. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, um, I mean, I'm kind of interested in two things. One is just how he continued to be an independent artist through the 80s into the 90s, you know, as, as, as the Christian music industry consolidated and became quite lame in a lot of ways, in most ways, uh, in my opinion. And um, also the way in which some of the energy and 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 fervency of the Jesus movement of the 70s of the early 70s kind of became incorporated and you know transformed and reinfused more mainline church experiences and and currents in in the states uh you know it kind of got absorbed if you will uh, in some ways that were interesting. You mentioned the vineyard earlier, that, that small Bible study started, eventually became one of the more uh, powerful revival movements of the late 70s and early 80s, churches all over the world, you know, people bringing in a very intense experiential relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So as those, some of the energies and, and relationships and, and, and dreams of the Jesus people were incorporated into the mainstream into more mainstream situations. At the same time, Jesus' music itself is becoming this immense commercial behemoth. How does Larry navigate between with, through through all that uh, that changing landscape in his in his later career? Well, he was sort of, he was a victim of his own success because he was trying to use an art form of rhythm and blues and straight up rock and roll to talk about something that nobody wanted to talk about. 
But what happened was, is that the church created a subculture out of it. You know, there's, there's the old cliche that Christians should be in the world, but not of the world. But, but the problem really is that Christians are of the world, but they're not in it. So they would just take this form of Christian rock and they created their own record labels. They created their own, you know, ministries uh, surrounding this. So nowadays we don't remember a time at which there weren't drums and guitars in church. Uh, that was verboten back during when Larry started. So in that environment, I think Larry saw himself as being somebody who was very critical of the music in Christian music industry. There was a magazine that was supposedly going to be like the Rolling Stone of Christian music. It was called CCM Magazine, Contemporary Christian Music Magazine. And, and when the founder of it and editor of it, John Still, ran the idea by Larry, Larry just kind of mocked it. He said, you know, what is now Jesus, different songs about Jesus subject to some sort of popularity contest? You're going to rank a top 10 for Jesus? Like, that's not what this was about originally. And so he created a lot of enemies. And his efforts to keep the artistic element in Christian music and not allow it to drift into just pure propaganda really was a failure. So he became, as the 80s wore on and into the 90s, he became more and more of an outsider as this billion dollar industry, you know, grew up. And at one point, you know, Christian rock was making more money than jazz, rhythm and blues and classical music combined. Yeah, that was... It was big business for sure. I mean, it continues to be in different in different uh, ways. Well, here I feel like I should I should mention, uh, you know, as a kind of uh, uh, you know fan, I, I of course watched uh, David DiCipitino's uh, Fallen yeah. Angel documentary. You know, when it when it came out, uh, and you know, a number of years ago, and I knew David from other contexts and from this. Yeah. Frisbee documentary, which I, I like a lot more. Uh, and and basically at the end, he's he's kind of saying that not only was um, Larry, uh, you know, essentially a kind of sociopath and, and liar, but that he wasn't even, he was a, he was a BS Christian. He wasn't even really faithful. And it, it seemed very puzzling to me because it doesn't jive with the music. Cause I don't know the story, you know, until I read your book, I didn't know that much about the story, but it just right. didn't, just didn't jive with the music. I was like, nah, this doesn't seem right. So, but that and now I reading your book, I go, okay, there was, that actually was, not that accurate a portrayal and it was a lot more complicated than that and some of it involves finances and personal relations and you go into great detail on some of these controversies in, in your book we don't need to go into the details here uh but the part that that really kind of puzzled me was the sense that that he wasn't even really a christian and I, and and is that like a move that happens inside the christian world like you really want to screw somebody you go oh you're not even really a christian when it's so obvious that that even if you don't agree with a guy that like He's he's earnest. I mean, what what was the kind of why 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 is there was there an element of the Christian community that's so angry at Larry Norman? I mean, he's he's, he's pilloried in this. People want to get him in some way. What, <laughs> well, I don't get that. <laughs> well, you know, the Christians don't like they they don't want anybody to be elevated over anybody else. So, actually, Friedrich Nietzsche talks about this as his big critique of Christianity is that everyone has to be a sheep. You know, no one can be 
no one can be a shepherd. You've got to be the same as everybody else. And the, the fact that sort of Larry thought of himself as being, you know, an artist and sort of, you know, a prophetic voice and he mythologized himself in that way, it made people really angry because they were like, well, you're not better than the rest of us. And um, so you know, he, he made a lot of people upset because he sort of acted like, well, listen, I'm the Potter familias of this whole situation. I'm the father of Christian rock. And, you know, it's a Freudian thing. The, the Freudian move, the Oedipus complex, is the father has to die. You know, you got to kill the father in order for you to be something. And I do think that there was, I saw that happen quite a lot. There were people that Larry took under his wing and then, you know, one of the things I say in the book is, like, Larry gave a lot of, inspired a lot of people, and they developed their own dreams. But what happens when, you know, somebody's dream doesn't work out? They look at, well, who gave me this? You gave me this dream. And then you become the living embodiment of the fact that dreams don't come true. So there's a lot of anger that comes with that. Now, you know, I don't, I don't know what the motivations were, you know, psychologically behind all these people. I can't, I can't judge that. But <clears throat> he was a polarizing figure because he didn't play nice with anybody, and everybody knew that. It was a, it was a feature of his personality. He was a contrarian. He was Larry was itchy. Um, and, and what I found to be sort of the the, the standard format was he was really hard on Christians, but if you were a sinner, you got all of the grace and forgiveness and love in the world. That's the way Larry operated. You know, he, he, he held Christians to a high standard, and then they, they imitated him, and they held him to that high standard, and it became a fight. You know, it's this mimetic desire of, of you know, everybody wants the same thing. Everybody wants what Larry was. You know, they wanted to, they wanted to be this elevated artist or, or whatever. And so, you know, that, that becomes a family fight at that point. But, you know, there's so many chapter and verse about, you know, how Larry would treat, you know, people in concerts. I saw this myself personally. He would stand for hours, hours after concerts praying with people if they were, you know, a kid that, you know, was thinking about committing suicide or you know, um, it was on drugs or was completely alienated from their parents. I mean, I, I've read his diaries. He corresponded with these people. He reached out to those. So there was a lot of love for people that didn't know Jesus. But, you know, if somebody claimed to know Jesus and, and uh, they, you know, they didn't act like it. He was hard on them and they were hard on him right back. Yeah. Well, we only have a few minutes left, and it's, I know this is a big question, but I, I feel like you're throwing one that way. I know you. Uh, another book book you wrote is about what, what you call recovering classic uh, evangelicalism, and and uh, you you kind of look partly to this this period in the in the '70s and and figures like Larry as representing a kind of possibility for evangelicals that that to some extent are not is not panning out now. And obviously there's so many things to talk about relationship to Trump. I mean, there's, you know, that's a whole other story. We don't have time for it, but what would you say, what is the, what you can learn from Larry Norman or the kind of Christianity that he was doing, the kinds of questions he brought 
that you would like to see more of uh, today that you think is has has something to say uh, at the very least to Christians, if not to to everybody? Well, there's a you know I think that the answer to that question is where's the skin in the game for Christians? I think that uh, Christian culture has gotten very sedate. It's very comfortable. There's a lot of money involved with it. There's a lot of self-perpetuating institutions and ministries and organizations that are are built around um, professional God talk. And Larry didn't want a safe place for that. He thought that if that if you really believed in who Jesus said he was, you wouldn't create these little uh, hermetically sealed off stained glass silos. You would actually be out in the art world. You'd be in the film world. You would be in the business world. You would be mixing up amongst these people so that they, they might actually get to see somebody who was, was a Christ follower. And I think today, especially, Larry was always concerned about, you know, Christianity getting too cozy with, you know, power and, and the zeitgeist. You know, even though he was friends with Jimmy Carter, when Larry went and played at the White House, you know, he crit- criticized Henry Kissinger's foreign policy in, the, in, in his musical number. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> he was always going to have that prophetic edge. And... I think that, uh, you know, as Chuck Colson once said, the lions of the waiting room become the lambs of the Oval Office. Like as soon as you get close to power, you just kind of wilt and you do whatever they want you to to do. And so now I think what's happened is people just identify uh, whatever evangelicalism with this particular weird right wing religious expression. And I think... Larry is an example of somebody who said, you know, I, I am not going to be beholden to any body, any institution, any church, any organization. I'm going to read my Bible and follow Jesus and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's very well said. And I think maybe we'll uh, we'll we'll wrap that up here, except I just wanted to say one note, which, uh, you know, I, I appreciate just the, the gesture you made there in terms of uh, of of seeing a world where Christians and non-Christians are getting together over art, over ideas, over, you know, where, where this sort of separation and this tribalism that is now going on in our society are so intense um, and you know, I just, I, I just want to say, I appreciate talking to you and wherever you're coming from and you're talking to me and we're having this conversation and we're, we're united over our, our love of this figure. Uh, but we're also making a gesture towards a world where there's more communication across these, uh, these lines. Well, it's a privilege to be on your program. And I love the title of the, of the program, expanding minds. We should be open uh, because, as Augustine said, all truth is God's truth. So, you know, let the truth run wild wherever it may be found. And it, it usually is going to critique us and surprise us. Excellent. All right, Gregory Allen Thornbury, thank you so much. Thank and you. Uh, thank uh, I'll tell you out there, keep your minds open. <laughs> <laughs>